It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Theresa May's intervention on mental health, the state of the NHS, plus the latest woes of the Labour Party. I'm delighted to be joined by our Chief Political Commentator, Philip Stevens, Chief Political Correspondent, Jim Picard, Managing Editor of FT.com, Robert Shrimsley, and Political Correspondent, Kate Allen. Thank you all for joining. It's been a rather difficult time for the NHS lately. The Red Cross declared a humanitarian emergency in Britain's healthcare system, while Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour opposition leader, has accused the government of being negligent about the needs of the country. Theresa May, the Prime Minister, has brushed this aside as she doesn't recognise that description, while making a big intervention herself on mental health care. So Kate Allen, Theresa May has begun 2017 with a series of domestic announcements. The first one was on mental health, and we've got more coming down the pipeline. What was she actually announcing here? Because when I looked at the details, a lot of grand themes, but not much new money and not that much different from David Cameron's own intervention that he made last January. Yes, absolutely. Theresa May was criticised fairly rapidly with this mental health announcement for effectively being seen to kind of re-announce a Cameron announcement, no new money. What I think is important, though, as you say, is this is part of a series of domestic agenda setting, which Theresa May is pursuing. Uh, They say that politics is about telling stories to voters that explain what's happening to them in their ordinary lives. And Theresa May's domestic policy agenda is very much on the side of the underdog. She's trying to ally herself with people who feel that they've missed out in society in recent years. And the most notable thing about the mental health launch was the much wider, broader, more sweeping statements that she made, blaming complacent politicians for the rise of populism and hitting out at business leaders and social media for also being responsible. So she's clearly got quite a sweeping vision for what she's trying to align herself with domestically. It was quite striking, Philip, that she chose mental health as the first one issue to tackle because there's obviously a lot of domestic concerns that Theresa May has got on her radar. This trying to make a country that works for everyone, helping with the jams, all these political slogans. But I think people in Downing Street say this is really at the core of her social reform agenda. So it was good in a sense that she chose a topic that might not be as natural, but it jarred a bit with this picture of the health service, which is looking increasingly desperate. Yes, I mean, I don't doubt uh, the Prime Minister's sincerity in and desire to tackle the mental health problem. And we have a real scourge in this country, particularly for young people, where it's almost impossible now for young people to get care. I was talking to a doctor this week who basically said, you can't get a referral for a teenager, quick referral to a consultant unless they've actually tried to commit suicide. Otherwise, they have to wait months. So this is terrible. But I'm afraid, and it's sad to say, that her speech was shown as the week progressed to be entirely detached 
from reality. There is a crisis in NHS. It's run out of money. Two thirds of the hospitals are running big deficits. You only have to walk into an A&E or try to get a GP's appointment to understand what's happening in the NHS now. And I thought it was striking when Theresa May stood up in the House of Commons and said, no, there's no problem, just one or two hospitals. The faces of the Tory MPs behind her mm told the whole story. This is not the day-to-day experience of those very people she says she's on their side. I think this tells quite a lot about Theresa May's attitude to running the country as well, that when she was Home Secretary, she'd take a very hard-line view, you know, there is no problem with X, Y or Z, and it would go away. The NHS is a very different matter to that, and I think taking that kind of view, it might have brushed aside the issue for that day, but as you said, this isn't going away, Philip. Well, and I think uh, Simon Stevens, the head of NHS England, slapped her down rather effectively when he pointed out that the criminal justice system is not quite the same as the NHS. You can control demand in the criminal justice system. You can get crime down, and that's what's happened. And if you get crime down, you need fewer policemen. Or you can let people out of prison earlier. So there are ways that governments can intervene. Governments can't intervene to stop people going to the doctor or going to hospital or needing hip replacements or needing treatment for diabetes. Government cannot change the demand curve, as it were. And what's happening in the NHS is demand is going up because people are getting older. There are more people, more chronic diseases. And NHS spending in real terms is essentially flat. The thing that I've picked up this week, Kate, is that there are quite a lot of Tory MPs who do feel this point that basically the NHS needs more money. It's hit this point that no one wants another big overhaul because it would be very bad for, I think, both the Tory party and for the country if they try to enact a whole load of new changes right now. So you either have to leave it as it is, which is what Theresa May's approach seems to be right now, or you have to find money, which either comes through taxes or you could break the triple lock on pensions. But it does look good for the government, I don't think, to have that kind of attitude because all you need is more newspaper stories of people dying on trolleys and it looks as if the government is out of control of the situation. Yeah, the Conservative Party has always been very aware that it has a natural disadvantage on the NHS compared to Labour. And so it's, David Cameron was absolutely clear when entering office that the government needed to be absolutely rock solid on the NHS. Mm. Now, the funding plan that they put in place was supposed to do that and it conveniently was planned to come to an end just in time for the next election so that they could pump a bit of extra money in in the run-up to the next election and they were anticipating that 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 money would be required. Unfortunately, demand has meant that they've run through the money already and so the need to pump more money in has come a couple of years earlier than they were anticipating, which creates a big headache for the Treasury. But the Downing Street response to this, Kate, has been to attack Sir Simon Stevens, who runs NHS England. Now, it's quite an odd thing to do because he had a good relationship with David Cameron and George Osborne. And he said to them, look, the NHS is going to need between 8 and $21 billion to keep it ticking over. George Osborne went for the lower end of that scale, gave him the money. It's run out. But I think people will have more sympathy with him than politicians in this sense. Yes, it puts Downing Street in a slightly difficult position, particularly coming on the back of what we've seen recently about the controversy over Downing Street's relationship with civil servants and with, indeed, our former ambassador to the European Union. So there is a picture that is building up here which is creating a problem for Downing Street about its difficult relationship with a whole array of other parts of the state, effectively. And that raises questions about Theresa May's man management skills. She has this reputation for being a bit of an ice maiden. Maybe she needs to turn up the temperature a little bit and try and make people feel a bit more loved. 
She really can't afford to lose Simon Stevens, who is not only seen within the NHS as one of the best leaders they've had, he's run a big American healthcare company. So he's not your standard Whitehall apparatchik, as it were, and he could walk out of the door and triple, quadruple, quintuple his salary tomorrow, I know. So he's, I think, in a much, much stronger position. Jeremy Hunt now is in a very weak position, having had a big confrontation last year with Junior Dot, saying this is all about a seven-day NHS. It's now apparent that we can't finance a five-day NHS. So he now is feeling actually rather burnt by it all, having been encouraged by number 10. So I think now politically, the government's in a very difficult position. The question is, can a way be found for the prime minister to back down in a way that doesn't look quite as bad as it could do? People are talking about perhaps a cash injection in the budget when the present... Coming up in beginning of March. I'm not personally sure whether they will survive until then, because as I say, it's the everyday experience of people that matters. And millions of people every day, directly or indirectly, through relations and mothers, fathers, children, come into contact with the NHS. Tony Blair discovered this in the year 2000, when there was a similar crisis, and he was forced to go into a TV studio on a Sunday morning and say, look, I'm going to spend 20 billion over the next five years. And the position of Jeremy Hunt, who's the health secretary, Kate, is quite interesting because he's a hate figure for the left in many ways. And many were surprised when he was retained by Theresa May when she became prime minister in the summer. He's quite well regarded within the Conservative Party because he had that big battle with the junior doctors and a lot of Conservatives feel they won that battle and beat down the BMA, which was seen as trying to have some political agenda with their contract negotiations. But he's looked pretty hapless, particularly with this idea of moving the four-hour target in which to be seen. You know, it's the old political adage that if you can't meet a target, you just change it. But I can't really see him going unless Downing Street wants to unload the blame on him for this. Well, Jeremy Hunt said last summer that he anticipated that this would be his last major job in politics. And now, whether that was his wish or whether it's simply a recognition of the fact that by taking on health for a Tory government over a very long period, it has made him an actual political hate figure, which has harmed his career. It's hard to know. But yes, A, the Tory party certainly do owe Jeremy Hunt a vote of thanks for sticking with it for so long, thus saving any any other minister from having to take on the job. And B, he is in a difficult position this week. It was particularly embarrassing for him to be chased down the road by a Sky reporter, our former colleague Beth Rigby, in TV scenes which caused much hilarity, I think, even (laughs) were featured in the Metro newspaper. It really was the prime example of what an awkward position he is in, and it is slightly embarrassing for him, really. And the other problem as well is that Labour's attitude is very hard line that Jeremy Corbyn saying we need to end the quote-unquote privatisation of the NHS and he puts all the blame on that and it's very hard to have any kind of reasoned debate and we have seen some MPs talking about some kind of cross-party unity. I don't know how much scope there is for that actually working and having an impact but it does feel as if this whole issue of the health service is reaching a boiling point very quickly. Yes, as Jeremy Hunt himself pointed out, he in the Commons this week blamed a lot of the financial problems that the NHS is facing on the private finance initiative, which obviously was a Labour initiative. And it's hard for Labour in that regard to claim credibility on the NHS, given that they do need to take responsibility for the PFI. I think there are lots of problems, lots of politics in all this. 
what it actually comes down to, and I was reading something uh, this morning from the independent think tank, the King's Fund. What they say is on the government's current figures, the squeeze on the NHS over a 10-year period from 2010 to 2020 will be unprecedented in the history of the NHS. Nothing like it has happened since 1948. That's all you need to know. Someone should point that out to Theresa May and say, you've got to align your politics with the economic realities of the NHS. So just throwing this forward to next week, Kate, obviously the NHS will continue to be a big issue, I'm sure. But on Tuesday, the Prime Minister is giving her big Brexit speech, which has been much trailed and talked about, where she's going to apparently outline some more details of her plan for withdrawing Britain from the EU. Now, based on what we've seen for the first six months, we're recording this on to the day, six months since Theresa May became Prime Minister. I don't think we're going to get a fully detailed, costed, whatever, negotiating strategy that some people would want. We're hearing there's going to be a focus on immigration and on visas and and what that means for Britain. How significant is this speech going to be? We're still waiting for the Supreme Court. Is she going to talk about Parliament and all that sort of thing? How significant is it going to be? I would say it's likely that it could be more significant for the markets than it is for politics. We saw this week that the markets overreacted to something that Theresa May had said several times already in the past few months. There is, it feels, a real mismatch between market interpretations of political commentary and what's actually going on at Westminster in terms of what is a meaningful political development. And I think it's quite likely that Theresa May's remarks will be, to some extent, fairly boilerplate. She's not likely to set out, as you say, a detailed plan. She's likely to summarise the issues that she'll be touching on. I mean, it will be stating the obvious. We all kind of can identify already. We could probably write a fairly good version of the speech ourselves. Control of immigration, no more ECJ, that sort of thing. we, We know what she said and we know what issues they will need to address in the negotiations. So I think there's a fair chance that it will be politically relatively meaningless, but for the markets it could hold great significance. Downing Street are very aware of this importance of communicating effectively with the markets and that will feed into their decisions when they are writing the speech. However, there is a limited amount that they can do if the markets decide to overinterpret and overreact to what politically may be relatively meaningless. Philip, when we talked on this podcast before Christmas, we were saying that Theresa May hasn't really made any difficult decisions yet, both inside her government and maybe in her own head about the state of Brexit. Do you think she's made those decisions and what would you like to see in this speech? Well, I'm not sure I agree with Kate that the markets have got this wrong because I think there's been an Alice in Wonderland quality about the discussions within the government. On one level, they've been completely detached from the realities as seen from the other 27 European states. Ministers have been talking about what they want without really looking at the implications for what that would mean. And Mrs May in particular, one of her mantras is that there's no such thing as a choice between a hard Brexit and a soft Brexit. I'm going to have a tailor-made, a bespoke deal. And if you talk to anyone in Berlin or Paris or Brussels, Mrs Merkel said it this week, there is going to be no bespoke deal that unpicks the rules of the European Union to Britain's advantage. So what I'd like to see is some clarity and some recognition that the government is beginning to admit the trade-off. If you want an entirely domestic immigration policy, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to say, it means that Britain cannot be in the single market. If you want to 
pull yourself out of all oversight by the European Court of Justice, then you cannot be in the customs union. So these choices have to be made. The government and Mrs May in particular haven't faced up to them. I think we're getting to the moment now where the markets quite rightly are saying, look, let's have some clarity on this. If it's been a difficult week for the Conservatives, it's been an even worse one for the Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn attempted to relaunch his floundering efforts to become Prime Minister. He began on Tuesday by announcing that he was against free movement of people and for a maximum pay cap. Seven hours later, both of those positions had been reversed. Then on Friday, Tristram Hunt, the MP for Stoke-on-Trent Central, announced he was leaving politics to run the V&A Museum in Kensington. So Jim Picard, you were covering the relaunch on Tuesday and it was one of the most bizarre days that I've witnessed um, in British politics in a good while when Mr Corbyn began with this interview on the radio where he was not particularly confident in what he was saying and he was explaining how the Labour Party was not wedded to the principle of free movement of people but it would like to introduce a maximum pay cap by the time he gave his speech that had all fallen apart. The way I would describe this is it's a bit like getting Bob Dylan to try and run an orchestra in that A lot of people think Jeremy Corbyn's great. They've been really enthused by his leadership, especially younger people, left-wing people, people who were around in the 80s who thought that Labour went too right-wing. And they think that guy's great. But at the end of the day, being leader of the opposition involves a lot of quite complicated things. It involves managing people. It involves getting your position straight on a number of very complicated issues. And Jeremy Corbyn is not a person to whom that comes very easily. He's someone who's been protesting from the backbenches for 30 years. So when it comes to all those kind of boring, compromisey, putting out some policy that makes sense, that you don't deflect from, you don't drop, and you explain and you cost it. He can't really do it, or at least he hasn't been able to do it so far. Robert Shrimsy, when you were watching this unfurl on the day, it all just looked incredibly shambolic and as if they didn't really know what they were doing. Yeah, I think Jim's being a bit fair to Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, he didn't have to manage an orchestra. He only had to manage his own positions and his own thinking. All he was required to do was say what he thought. He's in in some ways, I know we talk about how weak he is in lots of ways, but within the Labour Party, he's in a very strong position. He's been elected twice with a very strong mandate within the party and an ability to say, this is what I want to do. And he briefed he was going one way and then he just let himself be sort of knocked off position. And I think the reason is because the one thing Jeremy Corbyn does seem to have to me to have going for him is a degree of personal integrity about his opinions they haven't changed in 35 years so it's not surprising that when he attempts to change them a bit on say immigration over a weekend he just can't do it he can't bring himself to do it and he slides rapidly back into where he wanted to be this is the point of jeremy corbyn to his supporters that he has long-held principles and he sticks to them but on free movement of people he's always been in favor of that and he created this very convoluted position which said that we think it's a good thing but we're not wedded to the principle I think is where they ended up. Is that right? So what what this statement said that we were briefed the day before was that in his speech he would say that Labour is not wedded to freedom of movement. Now this is quite a big deal because as we know Jeremy Corbyn in his heart thinks there shouldn't really be any limit to migration at all and his spokesman said back in Labour conference in the autumn He didn't think Jeremy thought that migration was too high or there should be any caps at all. So they came up with this very convoluted statement there. He wasn't wedded to freedom movement, but when it came to actually doing the speech, he then followed that up with, but I don't want my words to be twisted, nor am I necessarily (laughs) against it either. And this is apparently after a conversation with Diane Abbott where she'd lent on him and gone to say the opposite. So in terms of Corbyn's branding, this doesn't look like a man who's hugely principled, which is meant to be the Corbyn brand. But when it comes to 
actual policy. The problem Labour has, as we all know, is that half of their supporters are really keen on immigration, half of them in the white working class post-manufacturing areas are not keen on immigration. So in some sense, having a muddled message is not necessarily a bad place for them to be. Robert might disagree. Part of the skill of being an opposition party is giving the government space to trip itself up, which this government is certainly showing it's going to be capable of doing. So sometimes you just want to get out of the way, let the government make its mistakes and jump on them. And I think on Brexit, Labour Party only has to have a rough position. It doesn't have to be exactly on point on every issue. It just has to be able to understand what it thinks. That's where he's gone wrong in immigration. The other part of it, though, I mean, you talked about the high pay, maximum pay cap. I thought this was even more extraordinary in a way because it wasn't something that I was expecting him to go in on. He was bold this question by John Humphreys and he answered it. And when he said it, I thought, well, you know, maximum pay cap, that's probably a bit too blunt an instrument. That's probably not going to work. But as a piece of positioning for voters, it's quite smart because there is a general sense that people in industry, people in business, people in the banks and finance in particular are paid too much when they don't deliver and that this goes to an injustice in society and inequality and whether it's this mechanism or another one this is the right place to be politically for a party and in a sense learning a lesson a bit from Donald Trump which they said they were going to do which is engaging a bit of virtue signaling don't worry too much about what the policy is what you need to understand is we're against obscene high pay and he didn't make that stick and I totally agree with that but where it became a kind of thick of it moment is that he came out on the radio with this paid policy which overshadowed what he was meant to be talking about. Which I think he actually believes in. I think he actually believes in the maximum pay cap policy. He's talked about it before, so it's another example of something Corbyn really believes in. He believes in the theory, but he clearly hadn't given any thought whatsoever as to where this pay cap should be. And he came up with this ludicrous comment that... I think no one should be paid more than £50 million a year, which is so ludicrous, it doesn't really merit comment. But then what made this worse is that a few hours later, they obviously thought, well, we need to clarify this and we don't want to sort of let it be thought that Corbyn's just out there freelancing. So they put out this statement saying, when Jeremy said X, what he really meant was Y and Z, which is that he's going to have this 20 to 1 pay ratio cap for companies that have public sector contracts. And we're also going to have some kind of voluntary measures for companies such as a kite mark for ones that have fair pay. And we could even sort of change corporation tax for companies that have fair pay and they could pay a little bit less tax. So they came out with some policies, which is probably what they ought to be doing. But in the middle of a day when they're meant to be focusing on immigration in Europe, they're sort of making policy on the hoof like in the intraday way. This comes back, obviously, to the Bob Dylan point. Just picking up on the Trumpian thing, Robert, because there was this very curious story leaked out about Labour's new strategy in the new year that was reported by Politico, and they'd said that Jeremy was going to take inspiration from Donald Trump, which is quite extraordinary because they're pretty much polar opposites on the political spectrum, by just making lots of noise on social media and attacking the media in a way that Donald Trump does. And the two examples I've seen that's been pretty lame so far, the first one was they retweeted The Economist piece on Theresa, which was named Theresa Maybe about the premise indecision, and said even the Conservatives' friends are against them. And then today, Jeremy Corbyn tweeted directly to Jeremy Hunt, the Health Secretary, and says that you're failing, you're failing our country, do something about about it. Uh, you know, it's not quite sad or nice or lame or whatever Trump says. I think we need to pick apart what it means to be learning from Trump. In one sense, this is a highly sensible approach, which is to be an insurgent anti-politician outsider who is saying... The hell with the establishment. These people have let you down for decades. Let's try something new. I'm the guy. I'm on your side. I'm outside of the establishment, which if you can pull it off, works really well because all of your enemies 
become your friends in a way they help you because every time they slam you the message to the public is look the establishment is doing these people down so it's not a bad piece of political thinking for Jeremy Corbyn on the other hand you have to be able to carry it off and it requires a degree of discipline which is not showing but the other point is I think that the populist wave for the most part is allied to a degree of patriotic fervor it's not as easy just to be a left-wing populist as it is to be a nationalist populist which is what Donald Trump was so I think Jeremy Corbyn's going to find it hard to marry the two things together exactly the number of people on the left who said to me look you know, you didn't predict the rise of Trump until the closing days of the American elections. You didn't predict the Tory win in 2015. The pollsters didn't really predict either. So therefore, your predictions on Corbyn are worthless. To which the obvious retort is, those predictions were awry because people underestimated how right-wing the voting public were on both sides of the Atlantic and how worried they were about immigration and how, as Robert said, a sort of nationalistic, patriotic sense. And Jeremy Corbyn as a brand is, is none of those things. He's the polar opposite of those things. And as we discussed earlier, his instincts on immigration are let them come. You know, Good luck to him. But how does that play outside of London? Not so well. It's not the wrong piece of thinking for Jeremy Corbyn to say, I'm going to be the outsider. But you have to really sit down and plan it. And it's more, as you say, than just a few tweets randomly sent off. It requires discipline and organisation. Donald Trump brought in some very disciplined people to run his campaign. It wasn't all just a complete extemporising. But it is interesting that they are looking to Trump. I was speaking to somebody in Corbyn's office literally last night who was sort of wondering at what an alpha male Donald Trump was and how he seemed to have everyone in his thrall and what a fantastic press conference it was in the sense that he lauded it over the media. And you could see how they'd love Jeremy Corbyn to be able to do that. But the big difference I point out to him is that for Donald Trump, once you're in power, then it is quite easy to boss the media around, less so when you're uh, opposition party 10 points behind in the polls. I think it's 14 points behind in the polls at the moment. But if that was a bad day for Labour, then it's not got much better later on in the week that Tristram Hunt, who very briefly ran for the party's leadership for about a few days, I think, after Ed Miliband resigned, and has been one of the most thoughtful. He's liked by the press, and he's a historian, and not a very Labour person in the sense that he's always had this image of being a red Tory or whatever. Anyway, he's announced that he's off. He's quitting as an MP. Second person this year already. We're only halfway through January. And he's off to run the V&A Museum in Kensington, which itself is quite an odd thing because he's done these that have actually run anything before. But in terms of what this means for the party, Jim, it looks if Labour will hold on to the seat. How damaging is it to lose someone like Tristram, who's in the media, well-liked, etc.? If we were Corbynistas sitting here, we would say Tristram Hunt leaving good is, is good news. Yeah. Because it means we don't have to go through the whole bloody mess of trying to deselect him and force him out of Stoke-on-Trent. He follows Jamie Reid doing something similar a couple of weeks ago in Copeland and Cumbria, stepping down, and others perhaps to come further down the line. So in that sense, they will play down the significance of this. I think in terms of public perception, for those people who worry that Jeremy Corbyn is taking Labour down a left-wing cul-de-sac then this is very damaging. As you say, Tristram's kind of urbane, clever, witty, personable guy. He's the sort of person that would seem quite plausible to a lot of swing voters, especially in southern England. And don't forget, Labour has this terrible problem where it has almost no presence south of the Watford Gap. And people like Tristram Hunt, you would think, might be the kind of people who could win that back by being soft Tory or whatever you want to call them. But so much has gone wrong for Labour in the last 18 months that this is incremental rather than devastating. Robert, you're not looking very happy with Jim's description there. I, to a large part, disagree with Jim on this in terms of what it means for the Labour Party itself, because 
I don't think Tristan Hunt is a major political figure identified in lots and lots of households. His moment had passed. His group is going to have to refresh itself if it ever wants to come back and it's going to have this to be the new moderate people. Group, the moderate group, yeah. if you want. And if it's ever going to come back, it's going to have to be new people untainted by the Blair years. He was out of power within the Labour Party. He wasn't coming back anytime soon. He got a better job offer and he decided to take it. I think the waters will close over him very, very fast. The only thing I th- where I think it is significant for Labour is it's indicative of one thing, which is a lot of people who are quite bright and smart and still relatively young. They're looking at the landscape and going, you know what, we're going to be out of power for ages. And when a good job offer comes up, I'm going to take it. I mean, this was director of the VNA. That's a pretty big job. Jamie Reid went to get a job at Sellafield, wasn't it? I mean, it was That's right, British yeah. Nuclear Fuels, a significantly less high profile job. But the point is, they get off a decent job. They look around and go, there's no prospects in Labour. I'm going. But the thing they do have in common is they're both civic minded people who want to serve their community, serve people around them, what have you. And Jamie Reid, in his early force as well, he's looked forward and said, we're going to be out of power for the next 10 years. What's the point of me spending the best working years of my life just on the back benches, throwing rocks at the Tories? And I'm sure Tristram Hunt will feel the same. And also just on Tristram, he became an MP in 2010, if I'm right. So he isn't tainted by the Blair years. He was a special advisor in the Blair government before. He worked for Lord Sainsbury as a special advisor before he became an MP. So he's still got that connection, but himself, he never... He was an uber Blairite, come on, Seb. He was a completely (laughs) Blairite. I think where I uh, disagree with Robert, once again, is that... How dare you, sir? Come on, agree with me. I agree that Tristram Hunt is not a household name, and I think party with however many 230 MPs can withstand the departure of a couple. But I think the whole point is, you and I both know that parties tend to win general elections in this country when they're a broad tent, and therefore you need outliers. Even in the Blair years, they had outliers on the left of the party, the Corbyns and John McDonald's of this world. I think if everyone on the right wing of the Labour Party departs, then clearly it's becoming more restricted. It will appeal to fewer people, kind of by definition, and it will look much less like a party that could appeal to a wider section of the public. And that's the broader takeaway from this, I think. And the other point, talking to MPs in Portcullis House on the way here, is that we have a lot of by-elections coming up now. We have a by-election in Copeland because of Jamie Reid. We have the by-election in Stoke because of Tristram. We also have by-elections where Andy Burnham's stepping down and Steve Rotherham stepping down to stand for mayors up in the northwest. And there are also a couple of people in the Labour Party who are very ill and speculation about one or two more by-elections. There's speculation there could be six this year and therefore it's going to be a real test for Jeremy Corbyn. One MP described to me as a steeplechase for him and a very difficult one. Jim is clearly right in the sense that politics has tended to be one from the centre up till now and that if the party is seen as too extreme and too left wing, it's in a bad place. But I just think, unfortunately for the Labour Party, the people who were big names before Jeremy Corbyn got in, the big names on the right of the party, are largely spent and that wing of the party is going to have to refresh itself. And when the party moves back towards the centre, as I instinctively think it will, at least a bit towards the centre, it's going to be other people carrying the flag. I think the other interesting thing we haven't really got into is how in the old days, the left, right, fulcrum, centrist just meant not spending too much and taxing too much, not spending too little and taxing too little, but somewhere in between. And Labour found that quite easy from 97 onwards because the economy was doing very well and you could tax this growing economy and you could spend it without too much pain. And they don't have that anymore as an option because we owe so much money and because the economy has been in trouble for years. And the new fulcrum on which parties are positioning themselves is the social fulcrum. Are you for or against immigration in Europe? And Labour's supporters are at both ends of that divide and they're not quite sure where to place themselves. And this is what's at the heart of their existential problem. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening.
we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.